there's an old saying, I don't know how old it is, probably several hundred years old by now, about pastors. And the designation, which was given centuries ago to pastors, is that pastors are physicians of the soul. And as I pondered that, it's very profound to think about. And I think if that is true for me, then my specialization is anesthesiology. I have put so many people to sleep, it's unbelievable. (laughs) My pastor used to say, preaching is one man talking in another man's sleep. Well, this morning after the message that I'm going to share with you in just a moment, I was talking to a dear brother, loving brother in Christ, and he said, are you getting enough sleep? And I thought, wow, that's not so subtle a message. Pretty bad. So pray for me, will you, that... uh, I won't fall asleep in my own sermon. (laughs) Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're looking today at the first Psalm, and this is a tremendous New Year's text. It's a great text for any time of the year. And the good news for us is we know January the 1st is just another day on the calendar. And we can have many new starts in life. The gospel is about something new. And we can experience the newness of Christ in each and every day as we follow Him. So I'm reading today from the New American Standard Bible, Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. Now, let me pause here just a moment. Take note, this is the second time that the psalmist has used the word wicked. And when a writer, whether in Scripture or anywhere else, but especially in Scripture, uses the same word or phrase repeatedly in a particular passage of Scripture, Pay attention. Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked, third usage, will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked, fourth usage, will perish. In one of his films, Adam Sandler's character introduced me to a phrase which in itself is contradictory, wicked good. There's nothing good about the wicked that's mentioned here. Nothing whatsoever. And so when we think about this matter of wickedness, keep that in mind. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. People whose lives count and those whose lives don't amount to anything. Those people whose lives are fruitful and those people's lives who are futile. The psalmist sets in stark contrast these two ways of living. On the back of your bulletin, in very uncharacteristic fashion, I have given you an outline of the message. And if you're wanting to take notes, it'll be easy to follow, I hope. So use this to take notes. I'll refer to this at the end of the message as we're applying the message for the day. Let's begin by considering the feudal way. It's represented by chaff in verse 4. The Scripture says, The wicked are not so, 
but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Now, what is chaff? We don't use that word too often. We're not from agrarian backgrounds, so we may not be that familiar with what chaff is. Chaff is the casing in which a kernel of grain of wheat rests and is protected until it reaches maturity and is ready to be harvested. And then once the harvester in biblical times got to that point, what the harvester would do would go to the threshing floor and pick a windy day and take a threshing shovel, which really was like a flat-bottomed piece of wood, scooping up the wheat and tossing it in the air. And because the wheat was ripe, the chaff fell off and it was driven away. So this is what the feudal life is like. It's like a piece of chaff. Now think about that for a moment. Once the fruit has been threshed, what good is the chaff? The chaff at that point becomes meaningless. In a life that is characterized by futility, the feudal way that is described in this passage is a life which is a meaningless life, an empty life, if you will. It reminds me of the way in which Solomon begins the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. The NIV translates that meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. So a life that is futile is a life that is characterized by meaninglessness. Do you have any sense of emptiness in your life this morning? I would imagine there's more than one person present who came here this morning feeling rather hollow. Well, there's a remedy for that. And it's not just a part-time remedy. It's a possible full-time remedy for this sense of hollowness or emptiness you might be sensing in your life today. Another thing that we could say about chaff, once that the wheat has been harvested from the chaff, it's useless. It was very useful. It protected the kernel of grain until it reached maturity. But once it has fulfilled its purpose, it's useless. And a life that is based on the feudal way of living is a useful life, useless life. There's no usefulness in it whatsoever. I would imagine that most people present today are interested in being useful. Would that be a safe assumption I could make? That you're here in part because you want your life to count and make a difference? Well, the feudal life in no way encourages that or enables that. Now, here's a third thing that I would notice about this. Is that chaff is so light that when you throw it up, the heavier fruit falls to the threshing floor. But then what happens to the chaff? It's blown away. It is lightweight. And many people who live the feudal life appear to have it together. They appear to be satisfied. They appear to be living a meaningful life. But quite frankly, there's no real substance to their lives. They have an emptiness in their lives. And consequently, their lives are futile. These are some of the ideas, and probably you can think of more. If you think of more, please let me know. I'm interested in meditating on this concept of that kind of life, the life of the wicked, which is a futile life, is a life that's meaningless, useless, empty, and 
also superficial. It looks like it has substance, but when you drill down into that life, what you discover is there's nothing but hollowness, emptiness in that life. No substance. Well, let's take a moment to consider why the reason being, what is the reason or the reasons that this futile life is what it's all about. Here's the reason. The first of which is, it's because the feudal life is a life that is based in trusting man. Did you notice as we read from Jeremiah 17, 5, listen to that verse again. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. And that man is cursed who makes flesh his strength. What that refers to is, if I'm trusting in my own ability or the ability of others, if I'm trusting in anyone other than God, then I'm this kind of person. I'm living a futile life. It's the futile way of living as opposed to the fruitful way, which we're going to spend more time considering together this morning. But understand what the Scripture says, that the person who lives this kind of life, trusting in himself or in mankind, as opposed to trusting in the Lord... Another word for this is the philosophy of humanism, where everything is man-centered. Such a life is a life that is a losing proposition. Have any of you either read books or seen movies based on the books of Jack London, The Call of the Wild, White Fang? Those are just a few of the books which he wrote. In his credo, he says this, the function of a man is to live, not exist. He says, I prefer not to live my days trying to prolong them. I don't want to waste my time. Now, if you think about that, on the surface, that sounds really good, doesn't it? The function of a man or a woman is to what? Live, not exist. Would Jesus agree with that? Yes, but he gives us his insight into what that means, doesn't he? He says, I've come that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. People who live the feudal way of life exist. They don't really live. And when Jack London went on to say that I prefer not to prolong my days, but to live them out with vigor. Well, that makes sense, too, when you think about what the Bible says. The Bible says, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. The most opportunistic life is the life of trusting in God and following God. Because it has eternal implications, it's not something for right now. What's interesting, if we had taken the time to consider the entire credo of Jack London, what we would discover is that the pronoun I or the pronoun me or my is used repeatedly in it. What does that tell us about the philosophy of this man? His philosophy was man-centered. Consequently, the result of his life, because for every consideration we might give to him, his life was a wasted life. He did not deny himself anything. And this also reminds me of what Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 2.10, where he says, I did not deny my eyes anything I wanted. Wow. That's pretty strong, isn't it? And that could be the epitaph 
on Jack London's gravestone. He denied himself nothing. He was promiscuous. He was adventurous. There's nothing wrong with being adventurous if it's adventure in the right sense. He was ambitious. He was all those things, but it was all centered upon him. It was all about Jack London. The result of his life was that at the age of 40, he died of renal failure, kidney failure. He died of uremic poisoning as a result. And really, he died of alcoholism. He drank himself to death. He lived hard. He lived fast. But he did that to cover up the emptiness in his life. His life was chaff. He had a brilliant mind and a very excellent talent of writing. But his life was that kind of life. It was all about me. He was a picture of a person that is described among many other people by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where he writes, In the last days men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. We're so blessed if we know Jesus to have pleasure that is the right kind of pleasure. The Bible says in Psalm 16 that in your right hand, speaking to God, there is pleasure forevermore and joy in abundance, a joy that's unspeakable, a joy that has nothing to do with my circumstances. It's not contingent upon how much money I have in the bank, how many friends I have, or how many material possessions I own. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has everything to do with my being in the hand of God and His loving me and protecting me and giving me what I need. As I was thinking about the CR presentation and what Kathleen said, it was so well put. She talked about how we all have addictions and problems in our lives. And the result of that kind of life is represented in that statement by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17.5, isn't it? The person doesn't see prosperity, will not be able to see prosperity. Why? Because that person's heart has turned away from the Lord. The answer to anybody's problem in life is to be found in putting our heart in the right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the futile way is this kind of way that is represented by chaff. And the reason is that person trusts in man instead of the Lord. And here's the second answer. That person fears man too. The Bible says in Proverbs 29, 25, that the fear of man brings a snare. It's a trap to fear man. One of the cardboard testimonies confessed of being a people pleaser. The fear of man brings a snare. It's a trap, isn't it? Allow me to use Peter as an example of this. Peter takes a lot of hits from preachers like me. He was really a great man. But he had his weak spot, just like we do. He trusted in himself. When Jesus said to him, among others, when Jesus was about to be arrested, Jesus said to Peter and the other disciples, He said, to Peter specifically, you're going to disobey me. You're going to deny me. You're going to walk away from me. In fact, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. And Peter was vehement, was he not, in his saying, I won't do that. All these other fellows may do it, and they did. 
All these other fellows may do it, but you can count on me, Lord. And lo and behold, within just a few hours, he had done exactly what he said he would never do. Exactly what the Lord told him he would do. It's important for us to listen to the Lord. But this is how that worked. If you look at the different gospel writers' description of Peter's movement toward denying Jesus three times, the Bible says after Jesus was arrested and the disciples scattered like a covey of quail, that Peter followed from a distance. So he was walking in the counsel of the wicked. Get the picture? Verse 1, walking in the counsel of the wicked. And then the Scripture says that when he found his way into the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest, where this kangaroo court was being held to get Jesus crucified, when this was taking place, the Scripture says he was standing around a fire with the officials. It doesn't say which officials. They could have been temple guard officials who had brought Jesus there. We don't know who they were, but they were officials and servants. And he was warming his hands around a fire on a chilly spring night in Jerusalem. And then John tells us, in addition to that, that after he'd been standing a while, his legs got tired, so he sat down, walking in the counsel of the wicked, following Jesus from a distance. Then he's standing in the path of sinners, then he's sitting in the seat of the scoffers. People were scoffing at Jesus, and he became a scoffer himself, didn't he? When he denied it, the Bible actually says he cursed. Goodness, can you imagine? Such a radical reversal. And it's easy to explain, though. It was a quick change. Why? He feared man more than he feared God. Do you ever have that happen to you? I must confess, that happens to me way too often. The fear of man brings a snare. It's a futile life. It's a futile way of living. What is the result of this futile way of life? Well, look at verse 5. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And the last line of verse 6, but the way of the wicked will perish. Every one of us has a date to stand before the Lord to be evaluated. If you know Jesus Christ, the good news is there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. When you stand before the judgment seat of God, your life will be evaluated this way. If you know Christ, He'll say, you are in, as it were. You are one of my sheep. Go to this side and those who are not in a relationship with Christ will be judged severely because they've trusted in man. They've trusted in themselves rather than trusting in the Lord. And so we need to understand this. There's judgment that awaits the futile way of living. So that in and of itself should cause us to stop, evaluate our lives, and then get rid of that futility by trusting in the Lord. Now, let's consider the fruitful way of living. And this is very desirable for you, I'm sure. It's represented by a tree. Look at verse 3. Speaking of the one who is living a fruitful life, verse 3 says, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Allow me to interpret this just a little bit. The word stream literally is canal. It's like an irrigation ditch. We have mental pictures of this. Many of you live in the upper valley. 
and you have access to water rights from the Rio. And when the water authority allows you to take advantage of that, the canals are filled with water and you can divert water to water your yard and your trees in the yard and so forth. That's the picture. It's a canal. And the Bible says this person, the one who is fruitful, will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. The word translated planted firmly, if you see it in the New American Standard, is in italics, which means it's added by the interpreter. It's not in the text. But the word planted itself literally means transplanted. The idea is a seedling, a volunteer plant, that somehow or another is the result of a seed that finds its way into the soil and due to enough moisture, maybe in the rainy season, it'll break through the ground. Then the dry season comes and because there's no further input of water, what happens to the little seedling? It dries up, doesn't it? And this is a picture of our lives if we're not like this fruitful individual who is spoken here about here. Our lives will become chaff. They'll be meaningless and empty and superficial and not fulfilling as God would have our lives to be. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. And as we read from Jeremiah 17, the last two verses of the passage which we read, we read about how this kind of plant is a plant which continues to bear fruit. All the time there's plant life that's producing fruit. In our lives, we will be fruit-producing people. In our season. I must make this observation. There are times in your life, in my life, when we are following the Lord. We're seeking the fruitful life. And we're on track. But there doesn't seem to be anything of real lasting fruit coming out of our lives. Have you had that happen to you? I cannot tell you how many times in my experience over the past many years of seeking to follow Christ that God would just seem to give fruit, 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 fruit. I mean, it was just this overflowing fruit. And then sometimes along the way there's been this abrupt stoppage of evident fruit. And I use the word evident advisedly. And when that happens, immediately my first question to the Lord is, Lord, would you search me and try me? Will you expose anything in my heart that is creating this stoppage? Any sin, any lack of communion with you, whatever it is, Lord, would you show me so I can get it unstopped? It's, it's really painful, Lord, because I enjoy being a conduit of fruit for you. And there have been many times when the Lord has shown me it's this, it's this, it's an attitude. It's something you said to somebody that was unkind. It's you're fudging a little bit on something instead of being a 100% person of integrity. And then I confess those things, repent of them, and I get this relief and the fruit-bearing returns. But sometimes, in my experience, there has been the stoppage and there's no evidence from the Lord speaking to me personally in my heart that I've got something that would stop it. And there's purpose in that. Do you know what the purpose is? Jesus talks about this in John 15, too. He talks about the Lord will prune. Jesus is the one who is involved. He's the vine, but the Father is the vine dresser. The vine dresser will prune 
the vine. Why? So that the branches will not get too big for their britches. And think about how good I am. I mean, look at all this fruit coming through my life. And it's very easy to slip into that mentality. You know what I'm talking about if God has produced fruit through your life. And you begin to think about how wonderful you are and forget that it's the grace of God mediated through you as a branch that results in that. And so the Lord uses that time to solidify the growth, just like a tree has a short growing season. So I'm told only about four to six weeks of growth in the average deciduous tree every year. Can you imagine? That's not a lot, is it? It's four to six weeks out of 52 weeks. The rest of the year is used to solidify the growth. So understand that you will produce fruit. Your life is going to be fruitful. But in its season, when there's a stoppage of fruit bearing, what should you do? First off, go to the Lord and say, Lord, is there something in my life that's causing this stoppage? Secondly, if you get no answer to that effect, what do you do? You say, okay, Lord, I'm going to rest in you. I'm going to believe what you say in your word. I'm going to keep abiding in Christ. I'm going to keep doing what you tell me to do. And I'm just going to let you be the one who decides when the fruit shows up. Now, let me go ahead and say this. There are times that you bear fruit and you're not even aware of it. And can I say something here? It's great. Not because I'm saying it, but because it's true. (laughs) When you don't know fruit's coming through your life is the best time that you're bearing fruit. You understand why? I hope you understand why. It's because you're not taking any credit for it. Correct? That's true. No credit for it. So, as we look back at chapter 1 of Psalm, verse 3, there's one last observation I would like to make about this tree that the psalmist compares the fruitful life to. Its leaf does not wither. I love that. Jeremiah picks up on that where he talks about it has green leaves all the time. Now, in our geographical setting, we can fully appreciate what is being said here. And interestingly, this part of the world is very similar climatically to us here. The geography is a lot like it, and it's just a lot like where we live. So have you ever been out working out under the hot sun, maybe it's 110, you're working and doing something. You're not very smart if you're working in 110 degree temp, but you know what I mean. But have you ever been doing that? Maybe you're playing golf and it's 110. And then if you see a shade tree and you make your way under it, there's immediate relief, isn't there? You know, we who know Jesus Christ who are this kind of person, this fruitful kind of person, our lives will be like a shade tree in a place of intense heat that people can find shelter and relief from the trouble in their lives. That will be true of us. And that should be something which we aspire to. Is that something which is currently true of you in your life? Are people prone to come to you for shelter and for shade? Well, if they're not, it's time for a change. And the change is to be found in being a person who is this kind of fruitful person. And we're going to see the reasons for it in verse 2. 
There are two reasons for this fruit bearing in a person. First of all, he delights or she delights in the law of the Lord. The phrase the law, typically we associate that with the Ten Commandments, and we're right to do that. But it's much broader than that. Literally, the word Torah means the teaching, which encompasses the law, as we would think of those do's and don'ts in Scripture and assorted other verses associated with the law. But the idea is this person delights in the Word of God. In the book of Jeremiah, 15, verse 16, this is what Jeremiah said. I found your words and I ate them and they became to me my joy and the delight of my soul. Do you have anything that approximates that in your life when it comes to God's Word? Do you put yourself in a position regularly to listen to God speak to you through His Word and you have this welling of joy up in your soul, in your heart, and it's great delight, this is what will be characteristic of you. If you're going to be a fruitful person, you're going to delight in the law of the Lord. And look at the next thing. Not only does the fruitful person delight in the law of the Lord, but meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. When you think of meditate, what do you think of? Maybe you think of some lama humming a mantra, saying the same thing over and over and over again, or somebody working himself or herself up into a frenzy by saying something over and over and over again to reach a, a state of nirvana in this life. You know, you can't, according to Hinduism, in this life, but they're working to negate everything so they can just be sort of void in their mind. There's nothing mystical, really, about this matter of meditation. It's very practical. The word translated meditate means to mutter. You know what it means to mutter? Do you ever talk to yourself, by the way? Okay, I know some of you do. I can tell by your response. You do. Well, that's, in a, that's a form of meditation. You may not be meditating on the law of the Lord, but you're meditating on something. You're, you're sort of working it out as you focus on it, and you think it through. You're processing aloud. When St. Augustine, the great theologian of the 4th and 5th centuries, wrote about this verse, in fact, he translated it this way. He says, Blessed is the man who chatters on the law of the Lord day and night. Chatters. That's a good translation. You chatter. And here's a couple other ways in which this word is used. And we get deeper insight when we see the way in which a word is used in multiple places. It's used in the book of Isaiah, chapter 31, verse 4. Isaiah talks about a lion growling. Now, what does that have to do with meditation? It's the word haggah, the same word that's used by the psalmist here, growling. Well, I'll give you an illustration that many of you can relate to. If you have a dog, there have been times probably when your dog has found a bone and may have even come to you wagging its tail, not wanting you to take the bone from it, but just letting you know that there has been a great accomplishment achieved, and that's getting this bone. And so after that part of the scene is played out, the dog will find a place away from other dogs and other people and 
lie down and begin to gnaw on the bone. Have you ever heard a dog sort of growl in that situation? It's a sign of satisfaction, isn't it? And so the idea of meditating is there's great satisfaction which comes. And the way in which this psalm is introduced, how blessed is the man who does not do certain things, but also who meditates on God's Word. The word translated blessed is a word which means satisfied, fulfilled. It was a word which was used by the Greeks to describe the kind of lifestyle that the Greek gods had, free of any concern. It was used also by the Greeks to describe the upper class who had no worries about money whatsoever. It's a place of supposed contentment. We know better than that, but so be it. But the idea here is that this animal, this lion, growls, probably expressing contentment because of something that has been captured for food. A little later, in the 38th chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah uses the word Hagah, or meditate once more, in relationship to, of all animals, a dove. And it's used to describe a dove's cooing. What is the relationship, if there is any, between a lion's growling and a dove's cooing? Well, the cooing of a dove is also a sign of satisfaction, isn't it? And one translator translates that verse in Isaiah 38 this way, that the dove is lost in religion. I don't like the word religion. I would say lost in worship. That's what the idea is. And when we are meditating on God's Word, if you understand what it means, where you don't just skim over it and read over it, but what you do is you look at it and you chew on it. And you look at it and you speak it. And you don't just speak it in your mind. You speak it aloud in a quiet place where you can talk and not be thought to be losing it. And so you you talk about the Word and you meditate on it. That's real meditation, scripturally speaking. It's very wonderful opportunity that God has given us. Meditation is like, according to a real fine Christian man, he was a layman, not a cleric. His name was Friedrich von Hugel. He said it's like letting a slowly dissolving lozenge melt in your mouth to the extent that it's almost imperceptible that it's going on. When, if ever, have you taken time to meditate on God's Word in that way? And then we wonder if we don't do that or haven't ever done it, why we have so much disturbance internally in our lives, why we are always searching for that which will give us fulfillment. Well, go to the Word of God. Meditate on God's Word in this way. Meditation is focused thinking. Thomas Manton, one of the great Puritan preachers, made this observation. He asked the question, why is there so little change? There's so much preaching that's solid. Why is there so little change in people's lives? And he answered the question, it's for the lack of meditation. People listen to teaching. They leave. They say, wow, that was good. And they have different reasons for measuring good or average or poor. They have their reasons. 
But the reason that we don't change is we don't apply the Word of God. Because meditation is not simply for the purpose of increasing our information about God and about His Word. That's okay, but if that's where we stop, we've stopped far too soon and fallen far short. What we need to do is, see, ask God, show me how to do your Word. This is why David says in Psalm 143, he doesn't say, teach me to know your will. What does he say? Teach me to do your will. I know it, Lord. Show me how to do it. David was intent upon that. And so must we be. If we're going to take what God has given us, as we meditate on it, we need to apply it. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. That's the goal. We don't all do that all the time, right? We fall short. But that doesn't keep us from pursuing what God wants and then trusting Him to empower us to do it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Now, what does this take, this meditation thing? Well, it takes discipline. I love what Howard Hendricks, the renowned professor of biblical interpretation at Dallas Theological, told one of his students who came to him one day after class, he said, Prof, that was the way he was affectionately addressed by his students. He was a wonderful teacher of the Word. He said, Prof, I'm having a hard time getting up in the morning to spend some time with the Lord, listening to the Word of God and meditating on God's Word and praying. Do you have any suggestions, Prof? And this is what Howard Hendricks said in response. Well, here's my suggestion. You get one of your feet out of the bed and put it on the floor. And then you get the other foot out and you put it on the floor. And you stand up. And you go and you splash some cold water in your face. And then you come before a holy God and ask Him, to meet you. And what you'll discover is he's always ready to meet you if you come with a heart to hear. So this is what it takes. This will require in some cases, and this is, I'm a little reluctant to say this, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. Memorize God's Word. Not that you can say I've got a thousand verses memorized. Not that you can pass some Awana requirement or any kind of discipleship study requirement, but because you want to have it accessible to you so that when you don't have a Bible in hand, you can meditate on it. And how frequently are we to meditate on it? What does the Scripture say? Meditate on the Word of God. How often? Every once in a while? Day and night. Now, sometimes you can't meditate on the Word of God. A lot of times you're doing a job. You've got to give your full attention. But there are lots of moments in yours and my days where we can pause and meditate. And God will give us that little portable quiet time wherever we go. At least what you should do if you say, I just can't memorize. Well, maybe you can't. I don't know. I'm not going to comment on that. I think everybody can if they really trust the Lord to empower them. Some have better powers of memory than others. But here's what you can do. You can keep a pen in your hand when you're reading your Bible. And as you meditate on it, You're not reading for mileage. You're reading for relationship building with the Lord. You write down things that the Lord speaks to you as you meditate on His Word, as you read His Word. Now, let me give you some benefits which come 
from meditation. Here's one. When I meditate on Scripture, it heightens my consciousness of God. Because so much in my life, as is true in your life, so much of what goes on turns my attention away from God rather than toward God. So if I do what God says, if I meditate on His Word, what's going to happen? My attention is going to be fixed on Him. And is it true that we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? Yes, it is. So my meditation on the Word will enable that. Here's the second benefit. It will give me contact with God. The Bible is not God. But the Bible is the Word of God. In Galatians 3, we saw this a couple of weeks ago when we were in Galatians chapter 3. How in verse 8, the Bible says, The Scripture preached the Gospel. And the message was simple. God said to Abraham, and this was the Gospel, I will bless all the nations through you. If you go back to Genesis 12, where that verse first occurs in Scripture, many years before, two millennia before, 12.3, the Bible says, The Lord said, I will bless all the nations through you. So, in biblical jargon, the Word of the Lord is Scripture, and the Scripture is the Word of the Lord. So, it gives us a contact with the Lord. It also helps us to understand principles for living, principles for discerning the will of God. That's the third thing. And hot on the heels of that is that if I'm reading my Bible as I should, and I'm going to be a fruitful man. What must happen is I will go before the Lord regularly, and what He will do, He will either inspire me to a new direction in my life, or He will confirm what I believed God was leading me to do. That's what He would do. Very important to understand. And then, lastly, meditating on God's Word aids me, helps me in my praying. Because... I pray according to His will. And that's very important because the Bible says in 1 John 1, 5 rather, verse 15, that if we pray according to His will, He's bound to do it. So we need to know God's Word and meditate on it so that we can be fruitful people. The end of verse 3 as we complete our consideration today. In whatever He does, He prospers. And this is not talking about material prosperity, although there will, to a degree, be that element involved. will prosper spirit, soul, and body. I was thinking about the Powerball. Wow, I couldn't wait this morning to wake up and see who won. So I found it on the Internet, and nobody won. Do you know what the, well, many of you do, what the pot will be next week? $1.3 billion dollars. Unbelievable. Somebody, and I don't say it's a lucky person, it's a curse probably. They have that much money. Because when you study the lives of people who've won, in every case virtually their lives are t just a disaster. Ten years down the road, they don't have anything to show for it. Can you imagine making that kind of money? I was thinking about a story I heard about a man who would go every week on Friday to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, and he would write a prayer, and he would roll it up and put it in a little crevice in the wall, and it was the same prayer every week. Let me win the lottery every week. 
And this one particular week, he put it there, and this is what he heard. This voice from the Lord said, Moses, meet me halfway. Buy a ticket. You know, there's something we have to do. Now, I'm not saying go out and buy a ticket for the Powerball, but here's the point. The prosperity that's spoken of here is a prosperity that has nothing to do with materialism. It has everything to do with trusting in the Lord with all your heart and leaning not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledging Him and He will make your paths straight. There's nothing like walking with the Lord in terms of a sense of well-being. Shalom is the term which is used in the Old Testament. Peace that passes understanding. This kind of life is ours. If we meditate on God's Word day and night, meditate on it, we will be like trees firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. Would you pray with me just a second? Lord, there's so much more that could be said and probably should be said and so much better said. But I pray that you would rivet this to our hearts and our minds that we want to be fruitful people and we, by your power, would be committed in this year 2016 not to live a life of futility by trusting in ourselves or in mankind, but a life of fruitfulness because we're meditating on your word and applying it every day of our lives. Thank you, Lord. Amen.